Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, August 25th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Mississippi's high schools are moving football games to later times to avoid record-breaking heat. Then a new legislative committee studying the purchase of Mississippi farmland by foreign governments. Plus, the National Park Service unveils a new monument at the riverbank where Emmett Till's lifeless body was discovered 80, well, rather 68 years ago. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. K-12 sports teams across Mississippi are adjusting their schedules to try and avoid the hottest parts of the day. Many students have been participating in outdoor activities since the middle of the summer, but with school back in session, their schedules have become tighter. This comes at the recommendation of the Mississippi High School Athletics Association and doctors who specialize in sports medicine. Our Lacey Alexander speaks with Dr. Derek Burgess. He's assistant professor of orthopedics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center and a sports medicine specialist. He says there are safe ways for children to play sports, but coaches need to know where to draw the line. There is a preset heat index that the public schools in Mississippi have to abide by. So if you are trying to start at 7 o'clock and we are expecting temperatures 105, 106, um, that temperature alone exceeds the heat index that players are allowed to be on the field. And then the players have been acclimated to this heat for now for one to two months at least, whereas fans and many times other people who will be at the game, referees, um, and other people that are assisting with the production of the game have not been acclimated, have not been in this heat all the time. So we worry about them just as much. I mean, sometimes you're sitting on metal stands or metal stadiums with the sun reflecting off on them. They can be very hot or concrete stands. So we are just as worried about the fans and the, the band that are sitting in the stands as we are the athletes who have been running around in the heat since late May or early June. You know, many times... It's not only the athletic trainer or physician at the game who might notice that the athlete is not themselves. It's other teammates as well. Um, when they're in the huddle, if the person is not really focusing, you know, they might have a slight headache or they might have dizziness. Um, you mentioned profuse sweating or chills. They're chills, but sometimes they'll go from profuse sweating to actually where the body will stop sweating. 
as the disease process progresses. So those are all things that we're looking for. And the main treatment is trying to cool that core body temperature. Um, And generally at the games, we will have a cold body tub or a cold ice tub that we can immerse the whole body in to try to decrease that core body temperature. And that's important to do that within minutes of noticing symptoms. Um, And that can even prevent death in many situations. So let me ask you this. What is the fine line between protecting these teenage athletes and preparing them for potentially practicing in these conditions at the collegiate or even professional level? Where is that line to you? Yeah, one thing I would say is um, kind of the line is there's an acclimatization period that we put the athletes through when they first start practice. So for the first I would say it depends on which organization you're in, but at least for the first five to ten days, the athletes are in the heat, they have their helmet on, they're able to run around, then we put shoulder pads on, then we put the full gear on them um, to be able to get them adjusted to dealing with this heat and moving around in it. Now, I would say the heat is going to be the same for a pro athlete, as a high school athlete, as an NFL athlete, but many times professionals in college kids are able to practice indoors or lift weights indoors or maybe even have a indoor stadium where high school athletes and for the majority of high school athletes they're in the sun doing everything so i would say that the exposure uh, we know that the length of exposure to the sun is very important with dealing with heat illness so in many instances because of lack of resources the high school athletes are exposed more than the higher level Um, elite athletes in college or professional leagues. At Northwest Rankin High School, students are gearing up for their first football game of the season, but the schedule had to be adjusted to accommodate oppressive heat. Coach David Cooper says communication is key to getting students and parents on the same page with changes. The temp's a big difference from 8 p.m. at night to what you would feel at 4 to 4.30, even 5 o'clock. But every every minute is going to lower the degree. You see that. Um, you know, we've noticed that through practices and things that we do in the evenings out here. But at 8 p.m., you're going to have a, a really nice atmosphere. It cools down. There's plenty comfortable sitting in the bleachers and being here. We expect our uh, we expect our fans to have a great night of enjoying it. Uh, moving the time back to eight is definitely a good thing for us, and it's a good thing for our fans. And a good you know it's going to provide a a good condition for everyone. Gotcha. Other than changing game times, what else have you had to change about practices here in this crazy heat? Yeah. So uh, you know, MHSA. They they were ahead, and they, we have a really good uh, really good staff up there at MHSA. Uh, you know, number one thing is protect these kids, and they do a great job of getting ahead. And they they knew this was coming. They so that that speaks volumes to them to say, hey, let's go ahead and make sure we're doing the right precautions, the right things to protect our student athletes. And uh, you know, I think our coaches across the state do an excellent job of trying to pay attention to that. And uh, so yeah, it, it made some changes for us. Uh, so if we watch the wet bulb globe temp, and if that temp gets to certain degrees, it tells us what we can do during our practice time with our kids. Um, so, you know, the numbers run different than your your heat index. Like your heat index, if it's 100, your wet bulb globe may be down in the low 80s. You know, it could, so it, you have to watch that number. It, 
and I like it because it does tie in all your conditions. The wet bulb globe allows gives you more of the actual feel. It takes in all factors of your humidity to your your breeze to your cloud coverage, and uh, yeah, I feel like it's been a good thing for us. It's allowed us a way to make sure we're taking the right precautions to protect a and a student athlete, not let them get too hot, whatever. And uh, but it's affected us, yes. Yeah, so where normally you would practice at come out on the field at 2 p.m. or 2.30 to start doing things. If that day is a lot warmer and that, that wet bulb globe number is at, at whatever temps, we look at it. And for us, it's uh, we've decided this year for our football team to come and do night practices. We've brought our guys in. to our We bring them back at 6.30 p.m. and uh, we get them out on the field somewhere close to 7 and get started. And, uh you know, it's been good, and the boys have loved it. Our uh, our players have loved it. It's, it's nice and cool at that point. You're, uh, and you you might be still 90 or a little below on your degrees, but the air is a lot easier to breathe. But, you know, kids are tough, and uh, if you if you do your process the right way, summer all the way through, you're, that's how you really truly protect them. You know, if you get a kid that struggles, a lot of times it's because they're not as acclimated, but – the rules put in place by MHSA, they, it's set to where if you follow those things, do the things the way they ask, then we're doing what we're supposed to do to protect them, and it, it gets them ready to handle the, the weather and the heat. What have you and your school been communicating to parents right now? You just put out the information we get from MHSA, and we try to be ahead. Just let them know, hey, here's it's going to be a little different this year. So for us, we tell, we tell our kids, tell our parents, hey, we started telling during the summer. When school starts, you need to be ready that... We may come out here, we may have to lift weights, watch film during the block. We'll send you home on buses if you can go home. If if a kid doesn't have a ride, we, we keep them here, we feed them, and uh, we lay around, work on homework, whatever, and then when the evening time comes, uh, we, they, our guys have done a great job of coming back in. But I, that speaks volumes to our parents. We have a really good support with our community and our parents, and they get in there behind us and uh, – you know, it's it's their child, and they want they want their child safe. So we haven't had anybody um, upset about hey, I've got to bring my kid back at night. We've had none of that. They're all in, and uh, and that's why we have such a successful school. We haven't had any issues. Our, I've been super proud of our football team, and you'd rather be at night than have the sun beaming on you anyway. David Cooper is a coach at Brandon High School. Coming up, a new legis or rather. Northwest Rankin High School. Coming up, a new legislative committee is studying the purchase of state farmland by foreign governments. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, host of the original Southern Remedy, the show where I answer your medical questions. Subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on any podcasting app. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. State lawmakers are now studying why foreign governments seem to be so interested in purchasing land in the Mississippi. A law was passed this year that restricts 
the sale of state land to foreign interests. According to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, around 777,000 acres in Mississippi are owned by entities in other nations. Our Will Stribling speaks with Mississippi Agriculture Commissioner Andy Gibson. He chairs the study committee on foreign purchase of farmland, and he tells us what they discussed in their first meeting. We think it's important because the greatest security we have as a nation and as a state is the ability to produce our own food. Food security is national security. And when we have foreign governments coming in behind the scenes or unknown, as we see today, uh, that is is a potential issue. And we have to look at it. Uh, Right now today, what what we discovered was 2.5% of our farmland is owned are controlled by foreign governments. Some of those governments are friendly nations that have a treaty with the United States, but there's nothing on the books today to prohibit our enemies from coming in here, buying up farmland and doing whatever they want to with it. And it's also important for international trade. We sell food products, we sell fiber, we sell wood products all around the world. And if the foreign governments come buy it up, we won't have anything to sell. So we, we need to look at that. And we need to be wise about it and, and balance it with people's private property rights as, uh, as we know we can do. There's a lot of work that happens behind the scenes between meetings. We'll be collecting data. At the next meeting, we'll have it by county as to who owns what by county in the state of Mississippi and all 82 counties. We will send that information out to the committee. And as we collect it, we're going to post it on that public website so the people of Mississippi know what's going on. And they, then they have an opportunity to send, send their comments. It is always always, always a great idea to listen to the people. And when it's an issue important to the people of this state, we need to listen to them. We need to hear from them. So I invite people to send their comments in. Farmland at mdac.ms.gov. Coming back to the committee work, you mentioned in there that other states had been, that maybe been a little too hasty in legislating against, yeah. uh, you know, purchase of farmland. Um, what, what are some of those mistakes and uh, why do you think it's important to, to well, avoid them? We're going to talk about all of that next meeting, next month. One of the mistakes that I have heard, they passed a law and then they found out they had some, you know, tire company or some uh, 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 automobile manufacturing company that it was going to put them out of business. And then they had to go back and undo it. Well, we, we, we don't want to do anything like that to make a mistake and, and cost people's jobs. But we do want to make sure we protect our farmland against foreign adversarial control. Mississippi farmers are also facing one of the most severe droughts in years with the high temperatures and low rainfall across the state. Gibson says this could cause many crops to die before harvest. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say every crop south of I-20 is going to die as a result of this drought. There are hay fields that are gone that will not be enough hay south of I-20 as a result of this drought. Our farmers are persevering. It's not our farmers' first time to deal with this, but to have this severity at this long a time and this heat level, 100, 104, 105 for like 12 days, that's not happened before. So we have been really punching up USDA. The USDA is the one who will trigger whatever disaster, drought disaster relief programs there are. They haven't even updated their website to reflect a drought. And so we've been contacting them this week to get them to do that. Hopefully by next week that will happen. And then farmers can go to their local farm service agency. They need to go now. Farmers need to go report the drought to their local FSA office today to make sure it's reflected in the USDA records to trigger that relief. 
A lot of farmers will have crop insurance, some will not. Some farmers have irrigation, some do not. Our soybean crop was looking great until this drought came. Now it's going to be a question of whether it's irrigated land or dry. Pray for the farmers, pray for rain. The, the beef cattle herd in our country is lower today than it has been since the 1960s. Fewer beef cattle because of droughts that have been happening out in the Midwest and out in the West for the last two years. That's causing the meat prices to go higher. So inflation is already a problem. This could result in higher inflation levels, and uh, we certainly, certainly don't want to see that. But our farmers, and it's not the farmers' fault. Farmers have been eating all that inflation cost on the front end. It's costing twice as much now to raise a crop as it did two years ago. So farmers have been suffering. And now to have this drought to battle with, uh, it's going to make it more difficult. But, you know, we're going to get through this. We will get through it. We, there will be rain that will come. We'll have the fall grazing that we hope and pray for, and we'll get through it. And just in the meanwhile, pray for rain. Coming up, events throughout the weekend are being held to remember the 68th anniversary of Emmett Till's lynching. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Workweek ends with local programs on MPB Think Radio. At 9, all aspects of gardening are discussed on the Gestalt Gardener. Next Stop Mississippi highlights events taking place around the state at 10. At 11, explore women's health on Southern Remedy for Women. This is MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is our mission. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, host of Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking. Join the conversation every Tuesday at 11 as we dissect issues that are important to you and your family. That's Relatively Speaking, Tuesdays only on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Monday will mark the 68th anniversary of Emmett Till's murder, and events will be held over the weekend to honor the legacy of he and his mother, Mamie Till Mobley. On Monday, the National Park Service will unveil a new monument at the site where the 14-year-old's body was found. On Sunday, historians will host a tour of the locations linked to Till's death. Our Kobe Van speaks with Patrick Weems, executive director of the Emmett Till Interpretive Center in Sumner. He says the event is expected to have a large turnout and seating is limited. There will be live streams of what takes place. For 50 years, uh, nobody mentioned Emmett Till publicly uh, in the Mississippi Delta. And so uh, even today, uh, if you go out to the barn where he was murdered, there's no state marker. There's no national marker acknowledging what took place. And so uh, when all else fails, it, it's up to us as local citizens um, to do this, right? And it, it takes the best of us. It takes the best of humanity to talk about the worst of humanity. Um, and our hope is that this never happens again uh, to anybody else's 14-year-old child. And so I think it's a really uh, a opportunity to us to reflect on where we stumbled and we stumbled greatly in 1955, uh, but how do we come together as a community uh, to try to right those wrongs? 
What are y'all going to be speaking about on Sunday? So the the theme uh, is is a a memorial service honoring Till uh, and his mother's courage. Uh, We have Dr. Daphne Chamberlain uh, from Tougaloo College who's going to give the keynote speech um, just about how do we recommit ourselves um, to doing justice work? How do we, how do we tell the truth uh, as a way to um, hold ourselves accountable? Now, on Monday, the National Park Service will be uh, dedicating a, a national monument to Till. I wanted to get your thoughts on having that national recognition and them staking, saying, we're going to remember this and we're going to make sure it's federally protected. You know, just recently, President Biden um, declared um, the national park sites in Mississippi and Chicago part of the National Park Service. Um, We're just so thankful uh, for the leadership of Congressman Thompson and our elected officials to get that done. The sites here in Mississippi are the courthouse in Sumner, Mississippi, and the Riverside Memorial, um, where our signs have been vandalized so many times that we had to eventually put up a bulletproof marker um, for a 14-year-old child. And so um, the fact that these are now going to be federally protected um, and staffed is just a huge step forward um, as, as we progress, as we, as we learn from our past. What does it say to you that Mississippi and the nation have begun to refocus on Till's story, especially over these past couple years? Because I remember around this time last year or the year before, I can't remember exactly, but Mississippi unveiled a state monument to Till in Greenwood. What are your thoughts on all this extra attention and raising the voices? Yeah, I mean, I just think, you know, for 50 years there was silence. Um, and, and now we're seeing just an eruption of memorials and, um, you know, historical sites and uh, monuments and, you know, the, the statue in Greenwood, Mississippi. And so, you know, my sense is, is more stories, the better. Right. Um, and it, this is not a, um, you know, a zero sum game. Um, there's lots of people that need to be honored in this state. Uh, Emmett Till is one of them. Right. His mother, who was born in Mississippi, is one of them. You know, they started the civil rights movement, um, and it's a failure that this that they, that they haven't been properly honored before now, right? That this should have happened in the 70s and 80s, um, but it's never too late to do the right thing. Um, and so I'm just honored that the state of Mississippi, um, Tallahatchie County, others uh, have, have, have finally acknowledged uh, this important story in our American history. What are your thoughts on the role that Till's story plays today, especially as we've seen similar stories uh, pop up over the past few years. I know in 2020, we saw probably the most well-known examples being George Floyd as he was killed by police. We we still have a long ways to go, I think, is, is, is one of the things that we continue to say. But I, I think also we learn from our history. Otherwise, we're, we're, we'll, we're fail, fail to, to repeat it. Um, but but part of the history is what Mamie Till did. It's what John Lewis did. It's what the Emmett Till generation did. It's how people responded to the most awful, gruesome thing that you could ever imagine happen to a mother. And how did how did she respond? Right. And she responded by having an open casket, by showing the world what they did to her son. 
um, and making sure that we wouldn't forget. And so think about all the young people who are Emmett Till's age who got involved in the democratic process because they wanted to make a change. And so um, I, I think there's there's apt comparison to modern day racial injustices, but I think there's also a blueprint for how we, we, we take democracy into our own hands and, and create a more equitable future. You know, I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier, and that's the vandalism we've seen against Till's monuments over the past years in Mississippi. We've seen people shoot at them, uh, run them over. Do you think that the federal government and state giving more attention is going to be able to lead to more protections for the markers, monuments, and others? Yeah, our, our signs have been shot up. They've had acid thrown on them. Um, they've been thrown into the Tallahatchie River, um, and each time we've been able to put them back up. But but this time we get the extra protection of the federal government, right? So if someone goes out to the river site, um, it'll be it'll be federal authorities that will investigate if there's any type of vandalism. And so I think that just that extra reassurance that says that these are federally protected. Um, that there would be, um, um, you know, the, the, the federal investigation if something would happen. I think just gives added more weight that these are important stories and and they're that they, that they're not going to be erased, and and that we know that there are are people out there who want to erase them, um, but with the help of the National Park Service, we're going to make sure that this story is told forever. Patrick Williams, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Absolutely, thank you. There are two other sites designated as national monuments. You heard one mention the church in Chicago where Till was eulogized was one. The Tallahatchie Courthouse in Mississippi where two white men were tried by an all-white jury and found not guilty is the other. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.